tonight and joining us. Can we get a quick round of applause for Ricky and for Volney for setting this up? Yeah. Woo. Awesome. So we're super excited to be here tonight. The format, we're going to talk for about 20, 25 minutes, and uh, then we're going to open it up to questions. So if you guys think of anything, questions, comments, feedback, please, we are, uh, we're very receptive and we're eager uh, to answer your questions. So we're going to kick it what, off here. What episode is this? This is episode 12. So I guess first question that comes to my mind here, guys, is do you believe that there's a, we're, we're known as title town in uh, Massachusetts and Boston. Do you think there's a correlation between uh, winning sports and real estate values, Ricky? I would definitely think the reason our real estate is climbing is because of the Boston sports teams and Tom Brady. Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. There was a curbed article a few years back saying that whenever the, the Patriots at least won a Super Bowl, Condo prices went up. They spiked. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is not <laughs> true. <laughs> oh, every year. I, I read an article. It's that's, what, that's what well, I Boston tried to tell Boston goes up something year. online. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not where you're developing, but they were where we were. We were popping. <laughs> no, I tell Jesse that. When she doesn't care about the Bruins or the Patriots, I'm like, Jesse, if they win, that's good for our, you know, financial well-being here. So um, I joke. But so next question is a question I get a lot, Dan and Ray. Do you guys make money on the podcast? Um, what's the end goal of this? You spend a lot of time and effort on real estate addicts. Why do you commit the time and what's, what are we doing for? I mean, we're, do, we're doing it to help everybody out. People that are starting, uh, you know, that's one aspect of it. I think another aspect of it, I think there's definitely a void, right? There's, there's not a local resource. You can go to bigger pockets. You can, you can hear what they have to say, but where are you going to get your local knowledge so we kind of especially when it comes to like multi-unit development so i think we felt that there was kind of a void in that like the metropolitan urban space where there's not a lot of people talking about multi-family development in the city i also felt like when when you guys started this up was that there wasn't anything relatable right you listen to bigger pockets there's some episodes that are relatable there's some that you listen to and then have nothing to do with someone who's trying to you know, experience real estate in a Boston or a major metropolitan area. And I think having you guys come in and you know, talk about the struggles that people deal with in a city, in a major market, is a lot different than what you see on most Bigger Pockets episodes. So I think that's a great segue into our next question, which is just, I think on Instagram, um, it all looks very glamorous and sexy. Um, but I know that there's a lot of uh, stress that goes into it and perhaps some sleepless nights. So I'll send this back to Ricky here. What, um, tell us about an experience that you've had that you really had to overcome a challenge, something that may have caused you a few gray hairs. Yeah, so I think you know, it's all well and good. You guys watch me post my stories when a project's actually coming out of the ground and being built. But a lot of times what you don't see is the projects that never go into the ground or the projects that take years and then you know, end up dying off. So uh, you know, for example, right now at 331 Chelsea Street in East Boston, we're finally pouring the foundation. It looks all, you know, on social media like it's been, a, oh, look how happy he is. Look, it's great. The reason I'm happy is because it's been two years of headaches <laughs> to get that thing out of the ground uh, at, you know, $3,000 a month carry costs plus all my other soft costs. So uh, when you start looking at the numbers pile up on a project like that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, oh, great, you're building a building, but you don't know the, the stress that went into getting it out of the ground. Yeah, the ante, you know, in poker terms, the ante just to kind of play the game, it's not cheap. So you kind of have to be willing to take that, 
take that bet on and, and know that that's money that may not come back. So. Even even a zoning contingency, you're still paying architectural fees, you're still paying attorney fees, you're still paying, you know, submitting your architecturals to the city. There's a lot of costs that are associated even with the zoning contingency, Dan, especially if you have to start reworking things. Dan, can you break that down for us? If you have a project with a zoning contingency, what is the cost approximately to take that just from the starting gate to a place where you know if this project has legs and is actually viable? And what does a zoning contingency even mean for anyone in the room that doesn't or on the podcast that doesn't know, like putting an offer in and what that means with a zoning contingency? So a zoning contingency means you're, you're putting a property under agreement contingent on going through the zoning process, the, assuming that you need a bunch of variances to build or develop what you're trying to achieve at the end of the day. So by putting a property under agreement with a contingency, it allows you to not hold the project because in the city of Boston, it could take 10 to 12 months for you to go through and get your building zoned uh, the way you want it um, and going through the zoning process and get the approvals needed. So that's kind of what a zoning contingency means. As far as the costs are concerned, I'd say, you know, taking a a standard triple-decker, I guess, for example, because obviously, you know, I would say you're probably at fifteen to $20,000 at the end of the day. Uh, between architecturals, you're probably maybe twelve to fifteen grand, and then attorney's fees, three to five grand. Surveying. Depen- yep, surveys, you know, a couple thousand dollars. I mean, it all depends on the size of the project and the scope of the project, but um, at the end of the day, for a standard three-unit building ground up, you're probably looking at fifteen dollars to $20,000 worth of investment before you even know if you get approved or not. So... Ray, you made an analogy earlier about poker. You said table stakes. I think the most frequent question that we get via DM or otherwise is this chicken and an egg quandary where it's like, I want to get into the game. I want to sit at the table and play. But everyone who is sitting around that poker table already has chips. The market moves quickly. I can't go and offer a property and then seek my investors how do you, Ricky, how do you, how do you answer that quandary? Like, how do you get around that chicken and an egg problem? I mean, it's, it definitely is difficult when you're trying to compete with experienced investors, but I think it comes down to being prepared, right? Take out all the variables you can take out, right? Talk to investors ahead of time. You know, do your studying of like, you know, bigger pockets and all that ahead of time. Figure out what markets you want to be, what the value is, what you could sell the condos for. Take out the variables you can. And as long as you can take those out, it's at least giving you a fighting chance when you're coming in to make an offer. Um, you know, and also, there's sometimes you're able to take advantage of FHA or other things that will allow you to actually put in maybe an offer that's higher than what a guy who is putting out a large sum of money at a uh, you know, higher interest rate would have to do. You know, a lot of other people, their strategy is they'll buy the property. Let's call it a just triple-decker as a standard size here, right? Um, They'll buy it, they'll live in it, they'll rent it out, they'll go through the whole process. That carries the cost, so that takes some of the financial risk out of it. That's one strategy to do it. And if you have the time, if it's your first property, why not move in? Why not go through all of this? Mark, I think you actually did something like this at one point. Um, you know, yeah. at one of your properties, you move in, right? And then you move I, from one, to one project to another? One property to the next. That's tried and true. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And there's actually, I think, tax benefits, too. If you live there for, you know, obviously consult your tax advisor. But if you uh, move and live somewhere for two years, then you, know, you get a little break on the capital gains if you resell it, too. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the wonders of being a developer. Um, 
what, what are you guys currently paying investors? Let's assume that you found someone who's ready, willing, and able to come to the table with you and, and stake you so that you can play. Um, what type of returns are, are they looking for? What's market right now? Is it tied to time? Is it straight interest? Do you do a waterfall and can you define waterfall? And uh, Dan, you do, you do a lot of that with HRV, so you guys want to take yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, Ray, you're the, Ray, Ray's the finance guy, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll, this way. I'll punt it to Ray. That's okay. No, we, um, there's not a good answer to that. There's no good standard rate, right? So if you're getting to more of a sophisticated investor and you're getting to a large institutional investor, it's kind of interesting because the folks with large sums of money are, might be willing to, to actually take less return since they have so much to give and they just want to park it somewhere that's safe. Um, but honestly, the answer is you make up the terms. You negotiate. It's up to you. What we're paying, it's double digits. If it's um, you know, a private money type thing, is it points and debt only most of the time? Is it equity? It has been. Do we like that? Not necessarily. Do other investors like that? Sometimes, yeah. There's ups and downs, and I could go on forever, but... Eyes are glazing over already, so we're done with the financial side. So, yeah, so the way I run my investments, so I actually started out mostly with families when I was getting started back in 2010, 2011. So, you know, nowadays I actually talk to sophisticated investors and they think the way that I do it is kind of crazy. And, um, but I, it's my, I base it on project return, so make it very simple. So if, a, if I run through a project and the project ROI is 35%, that's what my investor gets back. I keep it very clean. I don't try to, there's no waterfall, there's no complications. It's if this project makes 30%, you make 30%. Uh, if the project makes 25%, you make 25%. So I keep it very simple and it's, it's a different type of structure, but it works for me because you know most of my investors start out as friends and family and my main investor pool still to this day is friends and family. Do you follow a uh, general partner, limited partner? format for your investors whereby you're the GP and they are the LP limited partner? So no, all my investors are actually investing in personal guarantees with me. So it's a different type of structure where they're actually, I'm personally guaranteeing their investment with me on the project. Wow. There's no actual ownership in stake in the LLC. So I, when we typically raise, we'll use a GP LP format and we offer most typically 20% return on your capital. It isn't necessarily, there might be a little kicker, but typically it's 20% and it's not tied to time. And I, I try to keep things simple like Ricky does. Just, it, it's, it's complicated enough. Yeah. Let's go to the next one. Right. Um, this is a topic that we talk about a lot. Dan, Ray, and I all had lunch at Amrine's today in Southie and we were chatting about, um, there's a little bit of a feeling amongst the developers, and I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but that the custom home builder community often takes aim at private for-profit developers. A little bit cheap shots, if, if, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, they'll showcase something that they did for a client on a custom spec build, and then call you out for being cheap for not using Decora faceplates that are $25 each at each and every outlet location. Um, Dan, you have strong feelings on this. <laughs> Dan's the design guy at HRV Homes. So but he's smart he's about where he employs. He's the one that always causes me to pull my hair out. We're over budget again. That's my fault well, for not budgeting properly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, it's, it's kind of annoying when you, when you hear stuff, you know, when people pump their, their projects when they have, you know, it's, I, I wish I had an unlimited budget. I'm sure you guys wish you had an unlimited budget. I mean, I, I wish I could spec out custom cabinetry. I wish I could spec out top of the line everything. Wait, but we're not? 
<laughs> certainly seems like we are. No, we're not. It could be worse. Don't you're worry. Talking about, you're talking about cabinets that are being made in-house rather than being purchased from a fabricator. You're talking about custom cabinetry. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just... If I wish... I wish they were in our shoes and they had a budget that they had to follow to hit price points that they had to hit and make the money that they wanted to make. I mean, if we have a change order with a subcontractor, we're eating the cost. If they have a change order with their client, they're making money. Their client pays it. So, it's, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's kind of bullshit for them to call us out. You know, so, I would rather call them out and say I challenge them to do a development, and if they want to put the same specs that they're putting in in a custom home build, there's no way they're going to make money. So, Ricky, um, we hear a lot about custom home builders using the strategy of good, better, and best, and they can perhaps go to that client um, and explain the differences between the three and ask them how much they'd like to spend and employ to go good, better, best. But the challenge of being a good developer is to know when you must go with best or when good is good enough. So give us some real-life examples of things where you look at and maybe you can save some money on the budget and just say, hey, we're going to go good here, but I am going to go best on that because that's really going to matter. So I think you know, one of the main things, if you look at my projects, is that like, you know, material sourcing and product sourcing is extremely important to me. And if you, you know, certain materials, you can get this, a very similar marble for $40 a foot, to $10 a foot. You can get a very similar farm sink for $300 or $1,500, right? And so like I look at it from a perspective is I want to find something that looks very expensive for a lower price, right? So I think there's a lot of opportunities when you're in this space to look at what the expensive materials are and find cheaper options that look almost exactly the same and you're able to create that look. So um, I think from my perspective, that's kind of how I mirror my business is follow the top level design, but with affordable materials. And something that you're doing that, you know, I, we don't do, but you, you do, you give, a, you allow a lot of customizations to your buyers too, which I think, you know, is, is, I mean, some, we've done it before and we've gotten aggravated. So I'm, I, I don't know how you do it without. So on the project I'm doing right now, I'm actually, you know, it's one of the first projects in a few years where we don't have buyers in place. Uh, and I'm actually doing the designs all on my own. It's, it's, it's kind of frustrating to have to pick finishes <laughs> that aren't like edgy and custom. Because when I'm with a buyer, I can actually direct them to something that's like edgy and custom and really trendy. And now I have to design these units to fit the mold. Now you got to um, play it safe. Yeah, I got to play it safe. And it's, uh, it's a struggle for me. I've been struggling on it over the past couple of weeks. But, um, you know, I think you just, it's something you have to do. You can't go too far in the trend, you know, trendy when you're looking to sell units to multiple people. Before, yeah, I mean, we find, sorry, we find a lot of stuff on, like, you go on house and you're getting, like, inspiration and all that stuff. But, you know, you don't, if you push the envelope too much, you're kind of limiting their buyer pool, which is unfortunate because sometimes you want to push the envelope. So there's actually, I, I forgot who it was. It was on a podcast. It was an HGTV star who was on there talking about how... They were the show was forcing them to take risks that they didn't they wouldn't typically take because you can't build the same beautiful kitchen over and over every episode even though that's what every buyer wants white kitchen marble backsplash white quartz countertop they would typically build the same kitchen because that's what most buyers want and the show was being like forcing them to do something different and it actually put a risk on their business because they were having you know ten thousand episode isn't a lot of money in the scheme of your development business. So I'm going to go back one step. 
before we move off the notion of custom home builders, I'm going to kind of throw the gauntlet out there. So our good friends, Nick Schiffer and Johnny, we'd love to talk to you guys about the differences between for-profit private development and being a custom home builder and the challenges inherent in each. So uh, if this is my Kanye moment, then uh, so be it. But this, this we, is the invitation. To this the is pod. the invitation. We're, we're ready to joust. Nice. That'd be good content, good discussion. There it is. Yeah, let's awesome. do a podcast. You heard it. Johnny, Nick, if you're listening, we're, we're interested in getting in the ring and, uh, and talking Call about it. They're not here tonight, are they? You heard are it here. here? <laughs> no, not here. So where are we going next? I have no more questions on this note card. Does anyone in the crowd have any questions? They want to come up and uh, let rip? We'll, we'll bring you guys Why don't you guys bring, get, come a little closer? Yeah, yeah far us, you're so looking? far away. Harrison. I know you got a question. Yeah. And then, and then pass Ask it me about my hair. So we're going to do Q&A, so think of your questions. <laughs> and, Ask me about uh, my hair. Maybe we'll think of some more banter beforehand. Tim told me he's got a question. We got Harrison right here in the front. All right, I got one more here. This question came from Instagram, and I just got it texted to me. Question is a very technical one, but I think it's pretty basic. Is the idea of a condominium conversion? You have a three-family building. You bought it. It's three apartments. What's the process to take three apartments in the state of Massachusetts and sell each individually as condominiums? Do any of you feel uh, paperwork? Yep, let's get paperwork. Answer. Attorneys. Can any can any two-family be two condos? Is this a trick question? No. Because I would say yes, yeah. but I'm not sure if well, there's like some loophole. Not if you're in Walk Somerville. Not if you're in Somerville. <laughs> <laughs> I think when like, people ask me about that, they're like, oh, I'd rather stick with single-family rentals. I say, all a condo conversion is three single-family rentals all at the same time. Right? It's all in the paperwork. Attorneys handle that. Architects handle that. So your attorney will handle the condo docs. Your architect will handle the, you know, handling the plans. You'll have a surveyor who will put together that. They'll work together on creating that and making it into a condo building. You just have to concentrate on three single-family renovations, if it's a triple-decker, all at once. So instead of having one project that takes you six months, you can have three that take you six to eight months. So well, there's, and there, you're also putting sprinkler systems in, and you're also putting fire alarms in. So there's more complications you need that in involved. Single families in, in some municipalities too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Any questions, Harrison? All right. Yeah. Is this on? Okay, it, is. it is. Harrison, introduce yourself for the record. For the record, yep. yeah. Harrison Bonner of. Um, 18 Sachem Street. Wallston Real Estate. <laughs> Wallston Real Estate Investments. Uh, what is your opinion on um, investments in more, I hate to say, like more emerging markets, like lower price emerging markets? In well, these guys can't answer that because they, 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 they don't invest there. In, Shots in, fired. In comparison wow. to um, higher end, more established markets where you may be overpaying a little bit. Cool. Compared so, to where you're, you can buy. So implied in your question is that you're getting a better buy in those emerging markets. You feel there's more value on the on the floor. What are your up? opinions on them? Okay. And your and your strategies. So I, I personally feel that in, especially in Boston, you know the you know the major neighborhoods are starting to be extremely expensive, and there are opportunities where people want to buy condos and they're being priced out. So neighborhoods like Chelsea. Uh, Everett, I believe, you know, you're able to get into those, Revere now, where people are willing to make the one step farther out of the city and will still pay a very premium price. So, you know, we just finished a project in Chelsea and we were pushing 500 a foot on our condo sellout. And, you know, I remember five years ago, people thought I was crazy when I did my first project in Eastie. My attorney told me you'll never sell those, right? And I, that's crazy to think now. People are like, East Boston, condos, condos, condos. He told me I was crazy to be gutting a three-family as condos. 
And Do you still I work s- with that attorney? Still work with that attorney. <laughs> uh, but though that first triple decker, 340, 380, and 400 was my salad on the condos for a gut renovation. Um, you know, so I think now the opportunities are in it, it neighbors like Chelsea. We're starting to go one step out, um, and you're able to still get similar prices to uh, what I was getting in Eastie. Um, what are your thoughts I, on Lynn? I, ooh, I'm bullish I'm, on Lynn. I'm bullish on Lynn. I'm buying Lynn. But one, one thing on emerging, building an emerging market is just a quick and dirty tip for me personally. If I can't sell product for $400 a square foot or more, I don't care if I, I won't buy it. It's just like the cost of construction, no matter how I scale the finishes, I find it really difficult if I can't hit 400 a foot. Yeah, I was actually with the town manager of Chelsea this past week, and we were discussing Chelsea, and he was saying why projects aren't being built that are being approved. I said, the reason they're not being built is because you don't have people driving the price per foot high enough to actually start construction. So it's like the chicken and the egg. You're approving projects, but until people are coming in and taking that risk and getting it over 400 a foot, these projects are just going to sit and not get built. So it's like you need to be able to have developers push that limit on price per foot to actually get them out of the ground. I saw a hand <laughs> towards the back of the room. No? Yes. Yeah. Blue shirt. Questions. All right. So my name is Gabriel. So I'm a certified real estate newbie. Um, so my question is when you're looking at properties, how do you decide whether you're going to take a property that's like a three-family or whatever and make it a rental unit or condo conversion or just sell it as straight condos? Sure. Can I repeat the question? Yeah. So what he said was he was saying if you're looking at an opportunity where it's a three-family property, how do you decide whether you go for rentals or whether you go for a condo conversion project? Um, I can answer quickly on my end. So lately what I've been looking at, the prices of multis have started climbing so much it's to do a gut renovation at the quality I want to do. It's been really hard for me to find a cash flowing multi to gut. So mostly now I'm only looking at multifamilies from a, a cosmetic rental reno standpoint, um, be, just because the numbers don't work to, for me anymore to gut a triple decker. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'd say you, you kind of come across this when you're, you're marketing and you're going through the acquisition side of things. You'll come across a property that's not a full gut, but it's in really good shape and you'd feel bad gutting it. And like you said, you know, you're not going to really spend the money on it to gut it when you're going to have to spend more than what it's worth combined for the construction and and the rehab to sell out. My, my personal feeling on the question is I hate condominiums. Condominiums to me are a deal with the devil. All the most wealth, the the most wealthy people I know um, buy, hold rent. That's how you retire on the beach. I agree. Selling condos comes with enormous liability the tax implications, 50% of everything you just fought for and earned is gone. So the buy and hold approach is beautiful, but it's a very capital intensive business, real estate. And if you want to stay on the board and continue to upgrade your properties and buy more spaces on that monopoly board, you have to sell condos to keep your coffers full to do the next one. So my next deal, I'm, I'm trying to do uh, apartments. And yeah, so uh, My mentality is I build to sell and then buy to hold. Right? It's kind of, if you, you know, that's how I structure my business. Yeah. Any other questions out there? Oh, nice. Um, nice. Quick, right here. Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. Please. Hi, how are you? Yeah. Um, my name is Mark. You guys talked about private investing, family and friends. Talk a little bit about bank financing. What's your advice to people out there getting into the business and how they should proceed? Right. So, oh, go ahead. yeah, I could take that real quick. So, 
the first time Dan and I applied for a loan was the first project we did. We went into a small community bank, which we recommend you do. Work with the local banks. Don't go to like a Citizens or Bank of America. Leader Bank. <laughs> exactly. Go to Leader Bank, small banks. And, and unfortunately, they want to see experience. And we went in with none. So we pretty much got laughed out, even though we thought we put together a good presentation. But you should still have the conversation and you should talk to as many banks as you can because you want to understand what they want. And I would also talk to other investors to see what they're doing. So obviously you're asking us. We put together a couple, we used to put together a couple binders before we had established relationships with banks. One binder was just all of our underwriting, taxes, retirement accounts, bank statements. The other binder was everything about the project. Why is it a good deal? How do we keep the bank's investors and the bank's money safe? And that was the uh, approach that we went to. So after we had the experience plus the presentation, we found that more banks were saying yes than no. So yeah, one thing I think I, when I sit down with newbies, which I try to do when, you know, whenever I have the chance, someone reaches out, but is that start those conversations early, right? There's no reason not to sit down with a commercial lender and explain what you're trying to do and get them involved on that first project, right? If you can bring them in and show you what you're doing, you have that first hard money deal under agreement. You're doing a reno. You're working with a GC. You bring that commercial lender in. You, sh- you show them how you're running a job site. Maybe not that one, but then they might tell their, you know, their, their manager about you. The next one, maybe not. Then maybe the third, they take a chance on you. So you know, by bringing them in early and having those conversations, you're at least opening up doors and opportunities for yourself. So have those conversations. As important as you know, having that relationship with a commercial lender, it's, mostly, it's, it's a lot about track record as well. So you know, if you don't have a couple of deals under your belt, a lot of times a commercial lender is going to come back and say, you know what, you don't necessarily have, I, the, the deal looks good on paper, but you might not have enough experience. So, you know, unfortunately, we, when we first started, we had, we borrowed hard money. You know, it's a lot of, that's your, kind of your barrier to entry is a lot of guys have to go to hard money at first. After you get a couple under your belt, then you kind of graduate and you get to commercial lending and commercial financing. So that's kind of how the process usually works. I'm, I'm, unless you have a really good track record, unless you have a lot of leverage, um, unless you have a lot of cash to start, then that's kind of Let's the get the question over to my buddy Rob from Evo. Yeah. Shout out to Evo Realty. Evo Realty, Rob Signs. Robert um, Ricardo. Yes, <laughs> Robert Ricardo, Evo. Uh, shameless plug, look me up on Instagram. Ask me about real estate. So... Um, me and Ray were talking about earlier before the podcast started about how he was. You guys did the last, well, second to last podcast with Ricardo Rodriguez, a very well known um, real estate agent who deals with a lot of developers here in the city. And um, part of the conversation was about like how to spice up the uh, that particular episode by giving him hard questions. So uh, on his behalf, I'm gonna give you guys a hard question. So. Just this week, we were dealing with um, a particular property where uh, we were, uh, from a real estate perspective, real estate agent's perspective, when we bring a deal to a developer, we obviously want to be able to get the deal back once you guys develop it into condos or whatever, whatever exit strategy you have, we want to be able to benefit from it. How do you guys feel about assigning a pre-listing agreement or some sort of contract or putting, even if it's not a contract, just something in writing that says... Yes, this is what we're going to commit to because it's happened so many times to real estate agents. If I had a dollar for every time a developer said to me, yeah, you're going to get the listings back, 
I'd probably be the one sitting up there versus being down here and developing all the deals. So how do you guys uh, make sure that you not only follow through with your promise or developers in general that are able to then give it back to the agents? So I'll repeat the question quick. So what he's asking is, as an agent or a wholesaler, if you want to get the listings back on the back end of a development, what's the process to do that and how have you guys handled it previously? Sure. I'll take that. And are you willing to do it? And right? will are you, you do it? Do yeah. it? Yeah. And would you sign an agreement to attest to that? Or even I mean, just put it in writing. Yeah. Like how, early, how early on are you talking about? Like from the beginning. So say I say, hey, Ray, I have a five unit in Chelsea. It, you can purchase it for 500000 right now. And uh, it, it'll be a sellout of, I don't know, 1.3 after you put in 200. My gut reaction is that I would be willing to, I, I usually almost always would give the sales on the back end of a deal. If someone brings me something really good, as long as they're competent and capable as a, as a realtor, uh, I would love to work with you on the back end of the deal because you just unearthed so much value. However, there's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem with uh, signing an agreement ahead of time because I don't know how good the deal is. If it's something that's got a lot of meat on the bones, absolutely, I'd love to work with you. But like, it's I mean, that's, that's my only conflict. I mean, that's exactly what I say to most agents. So uh, of all the projects I have, a lot of them already have agents attached because they're the ones that brought me the deal. And... Uh, it really comes down to if there's enough juice on it. So if someone brings me a home run and they ask for the listings back, of course, there's, you know, that's available. Um, have I signed agreements? Do I have signed agreements? Yes, I have signed agreements on a lot of my projects um, where they want something in writing. But most of the agents I work with now, we've did that like four or five years ago. And then we've done so many now that they've started, you know, they understand, they trust me. Um, I think this is a cutthroat game. If you haven't been screwed in real estate, you're not in real estate. Um, <laughs> it's like, so I think in that, in that position, like, you have to understand. And, but once you pass that level of trust, then it becomes, uh, you know, you're able to let that go. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, too, in terms of, you know, we do due diligence. Uh-oh, we see some uh, shots getting passed around up here for those listening. Uh, that's not good. Uh, it's also kind of a chicken and the egg. You know, you do due diligence on the um, on the project itself. You're doing due diligence on the, the the agent too. You know, we we did have somebody bring us a deal, and I mean, oh, we'll just say the presentation of this particular agent was not aesthetically what you would expect for on the resale side. Um, I don't know what nice way to say it, but anyway, we didn't give him the back end of it. He didn't bring us the deal, but he was asking for it and. You know, you're you're looking and doing due diligence due diligence on what their track record is too. Do you so think it, if, it's if you, in hindsight, would it, if was there enough meat on it that you should have just said yes? Oh no no no! This this person was not qualified to resell them. But what I'm saying is, if somebody is, you know, I think from our perspective is like, we, what che do you, we we check and see like what are your sales right? So but one, it's a chicken and egg. How what do you, you mean by like, like enough meat on it right? Like so a, one one thing you can do, and this is what I've done on deals, is instead of signing an agreement for the listing, you just sign the direct percentage, right? You say you will get this percentage, right? And if you do that type of deal, then it allows you to sell them yourself or hire someone else if it comes down to it. You're not li like linked into them actually being the listing agent, but you're guaranteeing on the back end one percent. We're guaranteeing in the back end two percent. Um, so it's so almost like buying them out. You're buying them out. Okay. All right. Well, hey, one last question, and we're gonna go across the table. Um, what is this? The questions from here, guys. Uh, you know, tell me your favorite real estate truism, uh, the best advice that you've ever gotten, something pithy and concise. Anyone want to take it? Take the start, and then we'll all enjoy these and cue the music. Saying the biggest truism, like truism the or advice, advice I ever got. something 
My favorite saying, man, you can have what you want, but you can't have everything you want. Yeah. And, uh, I, I'd say the, uh, the one I live with is pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered. So yeah, don't get, both, be, don't get greedy. It's yeah. a good one. Yeah, so I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in open, you know, open networking, obviously, from this. I think we can all help each other. Uh, the old school mentality in real estate was keeping everything secret. Like some of my mentors, I think I'm nuts for sharing information, you know, all that stuff. I think the new age real estate is that we can all help each other. We can all make money. Uh, the old school mentality was you would never share a thing. So I'm a big proponent of new age real estate. Let's all help each other and let's all grow together. Dan? Absolutely. You got anything to add? Mm, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much with Ray. We say, the, we say the same stuff. How about buyers or liars? Buyers. <laughs> Wait, does you, did you have one more question? I think, did you have a question? Yeah, you had a question. Let's do one more. Last one. We'll do Let's it. Do a question. Let's do a question. That's right. um, uh, Tony Hippolyte, New Foundations Realty. So my question is, um, I currently just wrapped up a flip out in Springfield, and we had some issues with our contractor. What, what kind of uh, advice or steps you would say to kind of hold your contractor accountable? Is there a contract that I should have provided my contractor? For example, like some of our flooring wasn't done well. It, it, it's, we've already dropped the price on our house like $10,000. You know, how do we kind of go back to our contractor and say, hey, you didn't do your job. You know, we need an adjustment on the agreement or how do I make sure that doesn't happen sure. again in the future? So the question I'll repeat it just so I understand. How do you hold your subcontractors accountable for the work they perform and the quality they deliver? And my quick answer to that is set expectations ahead of time. Write a specific scope, an exhibit that describes exactly what they're going to deliver. Don't trust that they'll read it. Read it with them and review it count point by point. If you have to take that contract back out of the drawer, you've already lost. So it's just an understanding and a handshake, and that's how 90% of the best work gets done. Yeah, I think one thing that, you know, early on my contracts and stuff is like you're very laxed, and then you're very laxed until you get screwed over, right? And so instead of like taking that mentality, take the mentality of reviewing what you're signing and what they're signing from the start, and then you'll have a much better opportunity of success uh, than just like signing away at some type of contract between the two of you. Should I provide a scope myself as well, or...? Or should I allow them to provide a scope? No, you guys should be doing it back and forth, right? It should be a, it should be a, it should be a discussion, right? Obviously, from your end as the boss, it should be something that you're putting together. But you should have them have input, but it should be very detailed of what the expectations are. Yeah, the, the contract is really just, it's not supposed to be like this big secret document. You, you, and you don't want to use it, like, like Mark and Ricky were saying. You don't really want to pull it out. And, and like Mark said, when you pull it out and you have to go through it, that relationship's kind of soured already. So it's really just about understanding what the rules are. Like for us, for example, we have a lot of penalty clauses in there, and, and we're working with a new guy right now. And he asked, well, why are these all in here? Are you going to break me over the coals? And I said, listen, if you do your work, and you obviously you're a referral from another sub that we have, so we know that we, we kind of trust each other. But if you, if you do something crazy like pee in a water bottle and leave it on job site. I mean, that's what some guys have done. That's why we put it in there. I don't want to come into a job site and see old piss everywhere, you know? Um, and, and other things like that. But it just comes down to... And, I, and like Ricky said, let them make the schedule. So as long as the schedule seems reasonable, we let them set the time frame. You just kind of talk through it. And, and you all agree on it. Everybody's happy from the start and hopefully you're happy at the end. I think uh, before we do this, I think Dan's got a little surprise here for Ricky. Oh, I want to join the Goggle Gang. Let's do it. Let's go. Cheers. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Thank you all for coming. Out. Thank you, Ned Devines, for Love having you guys. us.
We're yeah. going to catch you on the next one. Thank you, Leader Bank, for sponsoring. Make sure you guys find Nathan if you guys want to talk about Z-Rent or Z-Deposit. Uh, great platform for and you. And thanks, 84 Lumber, for the koozies. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Cheers.